Live to see it, friends. You're listening to Fast Forward Radio on the Blog Talk Radio Network. Fast Forward Radio is an audio production of The Speculist, and you can find us online at speculist.com. That's S-P-E-C-U-L-I-S-T dot com. Or go straight to the blog at blog.speculist.com. At The Speculist and on Fast Forward Radio, we talk about the future, and we're not afraid to take a positive view of the future, to take a positive view of what's happening now and give you the straight scoop about what's happening in the world. And that straight scoop is that uh, maybe the sky just isn't falling. And maybe if you're ready to look at the evidence, you'll see that we live in a world that uh, could just be getting better all the time. Moreover, we believe we stand on the brink of what could be an incredibly bright future. If we play our cards right, a future that most of us haven't even imagined, much less dared to hope for, but one that we're all very much going to want to live to see. My name is Phil Bowermaster, and with me in the virtual studio is my co-blogger, co-futurist, and co-host, Stephen Gordon. Hey, Stephen, how are you? Doing great, Phil. I hope you had a great Independence Day weekend. I most certainly did. How about yourself? Oh, yeah, we got out there and you know, uh, put out some fireworks and had, had a good time. Had a barbecue on Saturday. And just you know, It's been a great weekend. Fantastic, and I believe we got uh, Michael Darling on the line as well. Michael, how was your Fourth of July weekend? It was uh, almost perfect. Almost perfect. perfect. Well, we don't want to hear it's about not the blemish. Yet. <laughs> yeah. The future is unknown, and it's got you know a couple hours to go. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it could hit a real slide at this point. You just never know. But uh, but we don't look at the world that way. Actually, I've got. I'm going to in, inject a quick sports story. I meant to put this on the lineup for tonight, Stephen. I hope it's okay if I interject uh, something I, I meant to mention. Um, on Friday for the fourth, went to see the. Uh, went to see the Colorado Rockies play, the Florida Marlins. And um, the, I, I don't know if you've heard, they, you probably don't follow them that closely. They started, they, they've, they've had a real bad first half of the season, uh, have not been doing well, but they've been on a tear here lately, and they've won five of their last six games. And hey, the great. game, yeah, yeah, they're, they're doing much better. The game Friday, they beat the Marlins 18-17. to 17. And it was just what about... What a game. Oh, yeah, it was well, just about the most exciting baseball game. They were losing thirteen to four. We we came back from a nine run deficit. Uh, that is a that fact, never history, happens. That never happens. Well, history was made two ways that night. History was made two ways. First, that's the biggest comeback that the Rockies uh, in, in in franchise history. Um, and in fact, that was uh, pretty impressive that they, uh, they they came back from nine runs down and closed to within about one. And then uh, the Marlins went up about five runs on them, and they had to close that gap again too. So I mean, it was just. You were there the whole, whole time for this. Oh, yeah, you had to be. Well, anyway, there were fireworks afterwards. So <laughs> oh, man. Everybody was going to stick around anyway. But, um, yeah, the only time they were in the lead was when they won, right? Right at the bottom of the ninth, and uh, finally a single, and the bases were loaded, and it was like, wow, unbelievable. But the, the other way that history was made, in addition to the greatest comeback of all time, this is, uh, this is the, the bit of history that, uh, that uh, Florida doesn't want you talking about, but they joined a very elite group on Friday. They are now one of four teams in Major League Baseball for the last hundred years who have done this same thing, and that is score 17 runs and lose. So, big congrats to the Florida Marlins. <laughs> well, uh, I'll give you one other one for the Rockies. Uh, yeah. Star shortstop Troy Tulowitzki, uh, and I'm guessing that less than ten players have done this, but goes into the dugout and for some reason smashes a bat. The bat bounces back up, the shattered piece, and lacerates his hand, 16 stitches. He's out for oh. many, many weeks. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's awful. That, that, yeah. that doesn't happen been... that often. No, that <laughs> no. doesn't. Uh, no. That, that's, that's not that great of a record either, I suppose. Uh, well, Tulo's been having kind of a slump, so I hope he... Uh, I had a friend who broke a bone. Started. I had a friend after a game uh, that he was involved in back in high school, broke a bone in his foot the same way, kicking something. Uh, uh. Got this is why we got to keep our heads cool about these sporting That's right. Noah. That's right. It can be awfully frustrating. But <laughs> it wasn't frustrating Friday night. It was a very exciting game. So got that uh, got that going on. And uh, I think in addition to the 4th of July, we wanted to note um, another important event that occurred earlier in the week. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, Monday was the 100th anniversary of the Tunguska event. Am I pronouncing that right, uh, Phil? As far as I know. I've never yeah. heard anyone say it. I've only ever yeah, I've, I've only seen it in print all my life. But uh, yeah. yeah, 
I think I have heard it one time, though. Uh, in in of all of all places, I heard the one time I've actually heard the word spoken uh, was in the Ghostbusters movie, which again is the is. There you go. It, it's a text. I mean, that, that is the source of all knowledge. I mean, before yeah, Wikipedia, right. this is where we turned was the Ghostbusters. <laughs> right. So. But anyway, right, um, that that meteorite, uh, they've they've about decided that it was uh, it, that it was a meteorite that it was about ninety feet across. It was all it was. Right. But, but the uh, but the devastation was eight hundred square miles of forest. Unfortunately, it was just forest. Uh, as far as anyone that knows, no one died. Yeah, anywhere um, from five megatons to uh, thirty megatons. There, you know, those, those are the rough. The, the number I see here in this article is one hundred and eighty-five Hiroshima bombs. Right. Right, which is you know uh, obvious, and and the thought is that uh, this is a one in three hundred year event, and uh, thank goodness it's no more often than that. And um, and and fortunately, most of the Earth is ocean, so if it were to happen again, it would probably hit there, or hopefully some. Well, I wonder. Um, yeah, I wonder <clears throat> what uh, what the impact would be actually if it landed. If if that if you had that blast over the ocean, would that cause a huge tsunami? Um, well, this one exploded above um, above the uh, of the forest. It didn't. That's it didn't, what I'm saying. If, if had had it exploded over water, yeah, it didn't actually. Happened. It didn't actually impact the the ground uh, in oh, but in it Russia. All so, those trees. yeah, um, flattened all those trees. Would it have? Uh, would I, you it know, have it, it probably would, wouldn't it? Yeah, it, it, it probably would. Yeah, I I, I think I, you know. I, there was a book in the 70s or 80s that uh, some guy had meticulously uh, put together a theory. This this would be a good uh, Tales of the Paranormal if we were going that direction, but uh, uh, put together the theory that um, that it was a spacecraft. And uh, he, he had the argument that that place in Siberia was about the only place you could, of course, the theory at that time was something hit, right? Not that it was an explosion over the surface of the land. Right. But that was about the only place you could hit and not kill anybody. Yeah, and so this alien was flying his craft. He knew he was going to crash, and he very carefully made sure that he landed there. You know that he crashed there so as not to kill anybody. So, <laughs> yeah, a very self-sacrificing alien. If oh well, yeah, yeah, and that, and that very nice of him, but uh, not likely. Probably a meteorite. Most likely a meteor. Uh, yeah. Although I, I like the alien explanation a lot better. That would have been. Well, it's cool, you know. Yeah. It's uh, it, it, and and that's where I got the water thing because because the guy said it would have caused this huge wave if it had hit, and I wonder if that the explosion still would have caused a, a a huge a huge wave. But um, what's interesting about that is that's not a very big meteor, ninety feet. Yeah, it's not. It, they, they're they're tracking uh, a, a many uh, that are up to a kilometer uh, wide, in which they, they call those would be civilization enders if if they were to hit us, if they're a kilometer wide now. The um, the likelihood of being hit by one of these is, you know, apparently they, it comes up very, very rarely, and the likelihood is that it'll ha the next time uh, one of those big ones are on track to hit us, we'll be in the position to deflect it. Um, but uh, you know, that's that's the deal with those. Have you ever seen a big one uh, uh, come in? I uh, feel. I mean, I, I know you've seen shooting stars, but have you ever seen? Yeah, I've never seen one hit that I know of. I've, yeah, I've, I've seen you know meteors. I've seen the meteor showers and that sort of thing. But uh, no, I've never actually seen one hit. Have you? Yes, I have. I saw a really big one um, in about. Well, it would have been about 1991, 1992, and that thing. Um, it came across the sky, and I actually heard it burning in the wow. atmosphere, and it was it was huge. It, it lit up the night. And I, I I stopped the car and waited for it. Uh, I had my windows down. I, I saw it. And I saw it come out of the. Uh, um, I believe that would have been the west. Excuse me. Actually, it, it was. It looked like it was almost going north to south to north, which doesn't make any sense. But anyway, um, and uh, I stopped the car and and waited for the explosion. I thought it was going to be something, you know, that was going to rock the planet. But it, apparently, it, the entire nation saw it. It came in at kind of an oblique angle. And I mean, from people from uh, out west all the way to you know to the eastern coast saw it, and um, it was just it, I, I thought it was going to hit real close, but no, it just yeah, apparently went through the atmosphere and, and burned up completely and never touched. But it, it must have been oh, so a big it didn't, one. It didn't hit. No, it didn't hit. So you misled but us it, with that. We thought we were going to get sorry. I'm that. sorry. I didn't. No, no, I did not see one hit. I saw uh, I saw a big one though. 
I wanted one to like hit your roof or something. I mean, I, I that. <laughs> no, that's not happened so far. Well, yeah, you know, I mean, I don't want one to hit your roof. I just that's the story. You wanted a good story like that, though, right? Well, I saw a really bright one. Uh, would have been about two years ago. About two years ago, I was in Las Vegas, and I was actually coming out of Caesar's Palace. And you see this bright light in the sky, which is not unusual in Las Vegas. <laughs> yeah, I'm about to say, wasn't it? You sure it wasn't just neon? <laughs> well, no, it was not, and and that and that speaks to how bright it was. That any celestial object you can see in the Las Vegas sky has got to be pretty pumping bright. out the, the lumens, you know. I mean, yeah, it's got to be very bright. And but but again, it, it was not one that I could. I mean, you could see it ended before it uh, before it made it to the ground. But uh, that was yeah. pretty cool seeing one in Las Vegas because you know it's just one of those all the weird stuff that happens in Vegas. There's another one. So. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but enough meteor stories, unless Michael's got a good one he wants to share with us. You seen a big one, Mike? I got nothing. No, no I don't think, I, other than seeing the Perseid shower, I don't think I've ever seen anything. Yeah. You get out there on a, I mean, just on a nice, clear night. I mean, you don't have to, you know, it doesn't have to be even a special occasion. If you get out there on a clear night and just, uh, and you've got a good view of the entire sky, you will see falling stars. It happens all the time. Yeah. Yeah, there's stuff there's stuff entering the atmosphere all the time. Most of the ones you see are very small. Some yeah. like even microscopic can cause a little streak, yeah. A, a big light. Yeah. Okay, so on to our next topic, which I believe is movies. We uh we're tracking the uh summer of movies here. Summer two thousand and eight, big movie summer, uh as reported by Stephen two weeks ago and we're uh we're we're tracking new releases as they come out. Uh, this week, uh, I saw one. Stephen, you saw one. Actually, and Michael and I both saw one. So we caught up with you on on Wally. Maybe we should talk about that first, uh, real quick, just to say that uh, I think we're all in agreement that that's a really great movie. You saw it too, then? Yeah, I did. I did. Okay. Yeah. Uh, uh, Michael, I mean, uh, you 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 had, uh, I mean, you you had a really good impression of it as well. Is that right? Yeah, I, I think it's the best G-rated movie ever made, and uh, I say that because I couldn't. I, I don't know how you'd compare Wally to The Godfather, or you know something of that ilk. Yeah. Um, but it, it, it's you know for me it's uh, it's top ten all categories. It's the best G-rated movie ever made. I would. I, w- I thought it was. I thought it was outstanding. I thought it was a masterpiece. I don't know if it's even my favorite Pixar movie though. Um, <laughs> Pixar is, I mean, just they just steadily have put out, you know, one brilliant movie after the next, uh, and you know, there, there are some that are probably not, you know, uh, for all time, you know, a gift for all time to humanity kind of movies like Cars was not one of those, but um, you know, it's a pretty good movie. Speak but for none. yourself, man. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, Cars was entertaining, but you know, that, it didn't, that, it didn't speak to the human. It will go down in Hollywood history as the movie that Paul Newman and Larry the Cable Guy were in together. I mean, you know, that's, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah, it's not likely to be too many more that where yeah, those two guys are doing a series of movies. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. If you if you're ever in a situation where you have to, you know, uh, you're you're playing a, a game where you're connecting the actors, that would be a good one to bring those two together. But anyway, um, <laughs> you wouldn't one move by knowing that. But um, exactly. Um, what was I saying? Oh, The Incredibles is still my favorite Pixar movie. Mm, okay, yeah, I love I love The Incredibles. Um, I, I I'm not going to go as far as Michael on the best G-rated movie. I think it is my favorite Pixar movie as I, as okay. I think about it. I think I think Wally might take the number one spot for Pixar movies, but it can't be the best G-rated movie of all time because, of course, the finest G-rated movies ever made starred Charlton Heston. So. <laughs> Yeah. You know, I you know, I mean, I, but for a movie without him in it, it was awfully darn good. I, I, I what what You're I like about you missed it, him in that pool scene. <laughs> I guess I did. I was looking, uh, but I didn't see him. Okay. I, I wish uh, I wish Char- Charlton Heston had lived, and they could have cast him in that movie. I mean, he would have been perfect uh, in the role of the captain or something. You know? Yeah, it would have been. Yeah, it would have been awesome. It would have been great. But uh, what I liked, what I liked especially about it was, you know, I had heard there's some kind of you know, some people are objecting to it on political grounds, which is just absurd. But um, what would be the political statement they're objecting to? Well, I guess um, 
I, I guess this kind of gloom and doom view that we're going to wipe ourselves out and uh, you know there could be this environmental disaster. But I, I, to me, that's silly. I mean, this is you, you, you have these parables to warn us against doing those things. Right. right. So you you, sh- you you know you show the consequences of that. Therefore, I mean, I, I think pe- some people just worry too much. But but what I really liked about it was. Um, I thought it was—it's it, it's just a very affirming of humanity kind of a kind of a message to that movie. Um, you know, even even when humanity gets itself into this state that it's gotten itself into, as soon as you give these people an option, they want something else. That's what right. I really liked about that movie. I, you know, that they didn't have to be pulled kicking and screaming out of that state into something else. That they that they absolutely wanted it. You know, they they didn't like being. Uh, trapped in, in, in into the state they had fallen into. I, I, I thought that was great. Yeah. All right, I just want to say real fast that this is Fast Forward Radio on the Blog Talk Radio Network. We're talking a little bit about movies, and we're going to get into the subject of the mundane singularity here in just a few minutes. If you'd like to join our conversation, please join us in the live chat room, or we'll be opening up the phone lines a little bit later at 347-215-8972. So let's move on to other movies real quick. Uh, speaking of superhero movies, I saw Hancock, um, making the transition from your reference to The Incredibles earlier. Um, I liked the first hour of Hancock, I would say, maybe 45 minutes to an hour. Um, And then then it's okay. I, I, you know, I think people are kind of hard on it. It it just, it, it, the rest of it is okay. It's just not the end part, I think, is the, is the problem is once we find out who he is okay because yeah. we do we do learn who Hancock is and why he is able to do all these things and that's given context it's oh, they, they explain his origin a little bit huh they, a little bit a little not very much but a little and he is not that okay the the character that Will Smith is playing in the first hour of the movie is just not what it, it's explained to be, and I can't say any more than that without without giving it away. But just the way he behaves um, doesn't make any sense based on who we we've, we've learned that he is. And um, I, I, I don't want to spoil too much, but I'll just say they should have watched Highlander. Okay, should have watched Highlander, and then they might have had a better idea. That's all yeah. I'm going to say. I don't know if I've said too much. I might have ruined it. But um, but Not the first hour is great. And, I, I'm not uh, even going to catch this one on, uh, until it comes out on DVD, I don't think. Yeah, well, you, I, I, I think you, you, the money will be well saved. Um, yeah. But Jason Bateman uh, was awesome. He was really funny. And uh, the the interactions between him and Will Smith uh, in the beginning of the movie, when it's just this kind of regular guy trying to help a superhero act like a superhero, if they'd have done two hours of that, it just would have been a, a really great movie. Um, I think it would have been right up there with uh, Iron Man and, and the Hulk and the other superhero movies we have this summer. But it, it turned yeah, into something the, else. You wouldn't even have to explain, uh, you know, why he's a superhero. You know, I mean, it doesn't matter. <laughs> in, in that universe, he's just he, he just is a superhero, and you don't you don't have to get into why. Uh, he could it could just been a a story about how he uh, stops being a jerk and starts being. A nice guy, superhero. Yeah, or just throw it away, you know. Uh, it just boom. Here's the origin, and it doesn't matter, right? Yeah. So, right. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I think either one of those. Uh, one of the reviews I read really summed it up. It said, "It's the more you, you know, the more you learn about who he is and why uh, he is the way he is, the less you care." Right. <laughs> 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 yeah. Oh well. But, but that is uh, that is kind of what happens. But there is a big surprise there, and I, I actually like the big surprise. I thought the big surprise was very cool when it happened because my wife predicted it. She yeah. turned to me and said that was going to happen right before it did, and she was absolutely right. So big, uh, big props to her for for nailing that surprise before it came. All right, so tell us about uh, Wanted. Wanted is um, well, it's I tell you about Wanted is not a perfect movie by any stretch of the imagination, and I'm going to tell you here's a big warning. It is about as blue as anything I've watched on the big screen in a long time. I mean, they get through two or three sentences somewhere in the movie without the F word, I'm sure, but I can't quite remember what sentences those might be. So if that, if you're at all offended by, you know, uh, uh, language like that, don't go see it, and sure don't drag your mother to see it uh, or your or your kids or something like that. That's not a movie for your mom. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So um, that said, um, it is kind of Fight Club meets The Matrix kind of deal, and I liked both Fight Club and The Matrix. 
um, the problem with Wanted uh, is that, you know, like Matrix, it sort of has a mythology. There's a reason why the, the way the things are the way they are within the movie, but it wasn't developed very well. And right. they only get into it about halfway into the movie, and uh, it just, you know, you just don't, you know, I, you're you're there having a good time because, you know, and and so maybe you buy you buy it, maybe not, but it could have been done better, and uh, that's kind of a shame. So, you know, I, there I suppose there is a possibility of a series of movies coming out of this. Um, I, I would, you know, I I'm not not you know sitting here. With bated breath, waiting on it. Um, you know. Well, if those sequels are any near as good as the Matrix sequels, huh? We've really got something to look forward to. <laughs> right. The Matrix stands alone. Uh, the, you know, I, I, I try to forget the sequels whenever I. Oh, here's a question. Uh, uh, Michael's asking in the chat room: Is this better or worse than the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen? Better, much better. <laughs> well, but, I'm, I'm discounting the fact that Angelina Jolie wasn't in the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Right. You know, <laughs> and, and one of the other questions in the chat room here is, uh, how much of her do we actually see? Let me just put it this way. Do we see more of her than we did in Beowulf? Uh, you see about the same amount, and this time it's not computer-generated. You All really right. <laughs> you really do see that butt, I tell you. Um, uh. and, and which, you know, depending on, uh, you know, how you feel about that, uh, it might be worth the price of admission right there. So, um, that's but that's that's the movie wanted. I, you know, I, I would not... Uh, uh, you know, again, it's. <laughs> I mean, the language is something else, and I'm not. You know, I, it, that usually doesn't even bother me, but my gosh, I mean, I. At any rate. Well, uh, some people can pull it off. You know, if it's a Robert De Niro film, you kind of yeah. expect it, right? Or, well, well, you know, it's sort of a yeah, and, and it's sort of you know you, you you hear the f word thrown out as sort of an ethnic uh, you know palate cleanser. You know, every 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 third word, but right, this is exactly. But yeah, that, this wasn't like that. And uh, like, seriously, uh, Midnight Run, where he's talking. Yeah, about yeah. That, I mean, and that, that was a great movie where the language didn't, uh, the language didn't uh, matter. It seemed like, but this one sort of, I don't know. It just sort of seemed weird in a movie that was almost a superhero kind of movie. Anyway, yeah, he says, I, I, "I got two words for you. Shut the bleep up." Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. Midnight Run. That was a great, a great Midnight line Run, in that movie. Yeah. Oh, we okay. got we got something coming out this week uh, that uh, coming out here in uh, the next day or so. It's Gotham Knight, which is the lead up to uh, the next uh, Batman movie. Um, comes out on Tuesday. Gotham Knight, what is it? It is a six part anime uh, movie that bridges the gap between Batman Begins and The Dark Knight. No kidding. And, and this is yeah. a theatrical release. It, no, it comes out on DVD uh, day after tomorrow, and uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. it. It's, I mean, they apparently they really spent the time on it. It's it's six interlocking uh, anime episodes back to back to back, and elements of each. I mean, it's like a different adventure with a different bad guy, where he's going after different bad guys in each of these six tales, but it builds an overall story that is resolved apparently in the sixth one. So six chapters, and uh, and then and then leading right straight into what uh, the Dark Knight will be coming out July 18th. So I'm kind of looking forward to that. I'm gonna I'm gonna catch it on Tuesday and go watch it Tuesday night. Oh, okay. Well, you can report back on that. And then uh, is Dark Knight is that this weekend or no? It's, uh, next Let's see, July 18. When's that? That's the day, uh, that's not this coming weekend. It's the following one, right? Because we could probably spend an hour talking about. Uh, the new Batman movie, um, seeing as we all know that in the future we'll all be Batman. I mean, that's right. <laughs> we've, we've logged on that at the Speculus before, but uh, that's uh, that's something to look forward to, a new Batman movie. That's uh, As Michael says in the chat room, Batman is a choice. That's right. Superman is a destiny. Batman is a choice. You see, that's kind of the difference between the two. Okay. Uh, and... Um, Hancock is a, I'm trying to think what he would be, kind of a mistake, I guess. <laughs> That's the impression I got. He's just a jerk. Yeah. So let's shift gears. And uh, well, he is a jerk, but that, actually, that part's funny when he's when he's being a jerk. Uh, that, that's, that's it, it actually worked as a movie when he was being a jerk, huh? Uh, yeah, I mean the the idea of the you know the drunken uh, superhero flying through the air with his bottle of Jim Beam in one hand and the uh, uh, the bad guy's car in the other, you know, and he's kind of stagger flying because he's had too much to drink. I mean, that stuff is. Uh, I think that's really funny. It really worked for me, but. Uh, Unfortunately, they don't. They don't stay with that. 
So let's move on. We'll talk a little about the mundane singularity. And I'm going to let you uh, set this up, Stephen. What do we What do we mean when we say a mundane singularity? Well, this is an idea that comes from Brian Wang, and this is the same Brian Wang that was our guest last week uh, on the show. <laughs> we didn't even bring it up when that we were going to have the show about this last week to him. We we probably should have, but anyway. Um, it's his idea. The critics of uh, critics of the singularity, the whole idea of the technological singularity, have said that you know the singularity idea is based on pie in the sky technology like spooky nanotech, where we get nanotech assemblers that build stuff molecule by molecule, or, uh, or artificial general intelligence. You know, these they, they have a problem with those things, and they say those are the enabling technologies that will make a, a singularity possible. And uh, Brian Wang says, hold up, um, we still could have a singularity even if we weren't to have those things. Now, he, he doesn't buy their premise. He thinks that uh, the molecular assembly and artificial general intelligence uh, will happen. But he says right. that even if they don't, then we'll still have a singularity, and it would be a very interesting singularity even without those things. And so that's what he calls a mundane technological singularity would be a technological singularity without those two and they quote enabling technologies so, so so we might distinguish between a mundane singularity which is one that's going to require AGI artificial general intelligence or molecular nanotechnology and right. a, uh, I'm sorry that mundane doesn't require those and a, right. and a spooky one right that would that would require those I, I'm going to throw the word spooky on the uh, the opposite of a mundane singularity it, right is that the right distinction, do you think? Or That's the right distinction. Now, I guess we've got to go back and just define real quick what a singularity is, what the technological singularity would be. And I guess the most basic definition, uh, uh, Werner Vinge, uh, uh came up with the idea. And basically, when we, by whatever means, accomplish greater-than-human-level uh, intelligence, that will be the technological singularity. And then after that, uh, people that are our level of intelligence – will not be able to, you know, predict beyond that uh, what what will happen because uh the you know smarter beings will be taking the lead at that point. So that's that's basically what the te- technological singularity is and Brian Wang is saying that even without artificial general intelligence you could have a singularity which is pretty surprising because usually when we talk about that uh we mean computers being, you know, becoming more intelligent than than people. That right. being and, and I think I think that Brian is probably using a slightly different definition of singularity. Okay. Because obviously, you don't get to greater than human intelligence if you don't. I think you don't get to it if you don't have AGI. So, well, so uh, if he, you could, if uh, there there are ways you could get greater than human level intelligence just through drugs or um, you well, know through human enhancement. That's a good point. There are you could uh, you know enhance humans to the point that they become greater than human you know more intelligence than humans are now and I, in fact i guess you could make the argument that we've already reached that point to some extent there are some drugs that you can take that um uh, you know will, will, will you know do make you smarter at least more uh, uh where you're cl- more clear i guess is the way to think about it that you can think more clearly and um uh, and you can stay up for days at a time without sleep and you know on and on there are, there are there are drugs like that already that's, so. Yeah, that that sort of thing does exist. And what, what's interesting is when when we talk about true augmentation of human intelligence, um, we we really can't predict what comes after that, including AGI and molecular nanotech, because you really do reach the singularity at that point. Once once we're dealing with human beings that are, you know, a quantum or two smarter than we are, we really can't predict what they're going to come, because we can't even predict what people at the current level of intelligence are going to do next. Much less right. what enhanced, augmented, super-intelligent uh, human beings are going to do. So th- this reminds me, this puts me in mind of a post I did back in the early days of the speculus, and I drag it out every now and then because it's just, I, I like the list. I made this list, and I called it, uh, and, and now the extremely good news. And my, my breakdown on it, on it was these are all uh, things that we can, we can expect to see in our lifetimes, uh, at least they're possible within our lifetimes, and that they can uh, be achieved either through technologies that we currently have or that technologies that are like logically implied by, by the technologies that we have. And I think there's some overlap between uh, the, the items that, uh, that I talk about on my list and the ones that Brian talks about on his list. In fact, what I like about um, Brian's list is you see a, a lot of the same items showing up, but they're all links 
to stories about people who are actually making these things happen, which is great. You know, I, I, I would I would say something like um, uh, uh, eradication of hunger worldwide. Well, Brian talks about that, and he's got a link to uh, you know a um, uh, uh, story about these vertical farms where you can take abandoned office buildings and turn them into farms that will, you know, produce amazingly huge amounts of food. Um, and and I, I think that, you know, the idea that the world can be radically transformed is kind of what he's getting at with the word, with the word singularity, as, as much as the idea of uh, reaching a point of, uh, greater than human intelligence. I think I, I agree about, completely. I, I think that that's kind of where he was going, even more than. Yeah, I, I, I agree. He, he's not really defining uh, technological singularity the same way as Werner Vinge, but he's, he's just talking about a remarkable future we have, even if we don't get these things. And so he, he goes exactly. through this list. Yeah, yeah, this, yeah. This, this transformed world, this world that we wouldn't even recognize because uh, because things have become so awesome. In it. Well, this is Fast Forward Radio on the Blog Talk Radio Network. Phil and Stephen talking about. The Mundane Singularity. If you'd like to join our conversation, join us in the chat room or give us a call, 347-215-8972. So let's start with that uh, kind of first item on his list. It's not actually the first on mine, but I do, I do talk about you know, eradicating hunger and having adequate clean water, housing, clothing for all, medical care for all, access to technology uh, to, to all who, who want it, and eventually total economic independence for individuals and groups who desire it. Now, is that some, are, are those kinds of things according to what uh, Brian is laying out possible and if so how do we how do we get to that say a, I'm, I'm sorry Phil you, you caught me at a moment where I was uh, switching between two different things I apologize um, oh no it's okay I, I I was just saying in my list I had outlined this view of uh, a kind of an economic singularity where we could eradicate hunger um, where um, uh, we could essentially eliminate poverty, where um, uh, you know all the material needs of humanity essentially could be met. So, so these well, are one of the things he brings up is the uh, the, the old idea I, I keep bringing up, and I, I just keep harping on it to speculate every chance I get is the Fab Labs. And okay. I'm, I'm talking also about uh, uh, another word for replicating uh, uh, rapid uh, <laughs> rapid replicators. Anyway, it's not nanotech by any means. What it is is uh, again, it's it's you know, um, you, you download from the internet uh, or someplace like that a a digital file that that's instructions for how to print something, and it's a you print a 3D item, and uh, right there when you need it, and uh, and 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 there you have it. So, um, and it could be something as small as you know, like a a toothbrush, or you could have uh, big machines that could literally print out you know. Homes and other buildings, and uh, it and this this is this technology is sort of already here, but it's one of those things that will will come about and will really transform our world in the next ten years, I believe. And he really oh, he I re- think yeah, I think I think it's going to be it's going to be huge. But I just want to back up from just just back up from the uh, from from the specific technologies. I want to catch one one thing that Brian talks about that I think is really interesting. He okay. talks about abundance in terms of kilowatt hours. Oh yeah, which I, I think is an interesting way to to, uh, to to define it. And he talks about um, uh, every living person have, having an, uh, personal resources at the affluent level of a current U.S. citizen about two hundred fifty thousand dollars per person per year. Which uh, those are some fairly well-off U.S. citizens. Actually, they're doing better than I am. Actually, these uh, citizens that uh, Brian wants to create, but. Um, he talks about it in terms of the fact that we use about 13,000 kilowatt hours per year for electricity and three times that for transportation. So what's that, 39, about 52,000 kilowatt hours per person per year in the U.S. Right. And that is our actual affluence right there for Brian. That, that, that is, is a good way to measure it. I th- I, and, 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 a lot of, and that's been kind of my problem with, like, the environmental uh, movement. You know, I'm... I, I, hey, I'm all for saving the planet and everything else, but when when you start uh, saying, okay, you need to use less electricity, what you're meaning is, you know, we need, it's a Luddite, uh, um, uh, you know, that, that's that's having, a, you know, a relinquish uh, technology, basically, because, you know, when we, one of the things that you know that, uh, the, that society is advancing is when people have more energy available to them. Exactly and, right. I, I, certainly there's a case to be made for, 
um, I mean, a, a huge case to be made for um, cleaner um, sources of energy and using energy much more efficiently than we do and using all resources much more efficiently. Recycling things and all that, you know, that's, yeah. that needs to be done, yeah. Good stuff, keeping the environment clean, good. And, in fact, one of, one of the things on my list was, was re-cleaning the environment back up again. But the way forward is through uh, more people having more access to energy. There's, there's, just, there's no question about it. And, and the world, the developing world is going to insist on it. They're going to find a way to make it happen, um, irrespective of the West's uh, insistence that, uh, that we step back from energy. And, and, in fact, even irrespective from what might be their own political rhetoric about how the world needs to step back from it. It just doesn't matter. They're, they're going to they're move ahead. And he, he talks in terms of... And, and, who, and who can blame them? You know? Well, I don't blame them. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, I'm using my 52,000 kilowatt hours per year, and um, I'll cut it way down, you know, as, as long as I, you know, can sell my podcast and, you know, I mean, have to keep my job, and I, you know, I, I don't, I, I don't mind using fewer kilowatt hours, but I'm not going to um, become Amish, right? Yeah. And, I, and I, and I don't think that we're likely as a society to turn back from. Uh, using electronics, from uh, using uh, automobiles, um, you know, from from this basically from the civilization that we've created, we're, we're not going to step back from it. Um, and people who are coming online, if, are going if we were to, to try to, it would be a uh, it would be an uh, environmental disaster if we tried to. I think that's something that the environmental guys don't get. Is that well, that's interesting. How would that be an environmental disaster if we tried? I mean, I can well, see how it would be a human disaster, but how would it be an environmental disaster? Well, it, given the population we have, we have to use technology to uh, to, to uh, stay, you know, to, to to take care of our needs. And for example, uh, what about all the people that are living in in places that get cold in the winter time? You you uh, you take away uh, our technological solutions to staying warm, and they'll go to, uh, to burning firewood, and you know they'll strip the forests, and uh, um, it, you know it would be a disaster. And and, uh, and you you know juxtapose that, not not just stepping back, but even staying with what we currently have. Even juxtapose current methods of manufacturing automobiles or. Uh, any kind of consumer goods with the kinds of things Brian is talking about here, and you really see uh, this this incredibly improved environmental future through developing new means of producing goods and 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 empowering people and allowing people to enjoy a more affluent lifestyle rather than telling them that they have to be deprived. Because he's talking about printable buildings, he's talking about inflatable electric cars, printable electronic devices, all the all the rep wrap stuff that. Uh, that, that that we've talked about, and you know, it, it's it's a model of creating abundance, of of allowing other people to enjoy what what we have enjoyed, and having a much more clean and efficient way of producing that stuff. I, I don't know if you read up on the inflatable cars, but that is just one of the coolest things I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I I've heard about another uh, uh, prototype that there uh, that a company is is planning on rolling out in the next couple of years. That's a fabric car. It's completely, you know, it's it's like a, an old fabric airplane, basically. Um, you know, you, what you have basically is a is, is the framework of the car covered with thick, uh, uh, heavy uh, fabric, but it's still, I mean, you're cutting down the weight of the car substantially, and uh, and and by doing it that way, and therefore it's it's much more uh, fuel efficient. And Absolutely. Same, same with these. Uh, same with these inflatable cars. And of course, these inflatable cars can be produced um, uh, all at a piece, more or less, and shipped flat. One of the things they talk about there, uh, like, like yeah, the a little box. Yeah, shows up. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the UPS guy shows up delivering your car. Yeah, you got to get some compressed air and blow up your car, and then you're uh, then you're ready to go. But <laughs> yeah, they're so much lighter that they run well off. You know, just a small amount of fuel. They run. Well, they're, they're good. Uh, they're, they're good vehicles to introduce into the developing world because they're so inexpensive and because they can be produced in large quantities without this big um, environmental footprint that you would have had uh, in the past trying to manufacture enough cars the old way to, to, to meet this growing demand. So, yeah, it, it's going to be very interesting. We're going to see fabric cars. We're going to see inflatable cars. Uh, we're we're going to see a lot more uh, motion towards uh, movement towards cars running on electricity, um, right. hybrids I think are going to become electric cars, and I think the grid 
itself. The power grid itself is going to start being powered a lot differently than it is now. I look to see the uh, the U.S. grid uh, starting to look more like what they got over in France. That's that's what I more know, nuclear. Is that what you're is that what you're saying? Seventy percent of their power comes from uh, from, from nuclear uh, nuclear power. It's one of the reasons that France has stayed on top. It, you know, they're the fifth fifth largest. Is that right? Fifth largest economy in the world. One of the reasons that they're uh, near the top of the list is because they are uh, producing so much energy. They they produce seventy percent of their own energy through nuclear, and they export a ton of energy elsewhere into Europe and, and, and make money doing that. Uh, it's a great example for the rest of us, you know, for, for the U.S. to look at that and go, hey, why aren't we doing this? You know, yeah. for, for everyone to look at that and say, hey, why, you know, <laughs> let's follow the French example here. <laughs> let's be more like the French in this way. That's and a, at yeah. least this one way. In this one way, yes. Um, and we can learn how to cook the way they do, too. I, I'm kind of partial to that. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. Um, you know, back in the 50s, in the late 50s, early 60s, they had what they called the um, uh, Boat of the Month Club. Have you ever heard of that? It's the, the it was the, of the month club? Boat of the Month Club. It was what the Navy called their their uh, program to put out nuclear powered submarines. Okay, they were they were putting them out at the rate of one a month, and um, and you know if 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 we could as a nation uh, do that and you know put out these small and and the thing about those nuclear reactors on board those boats they are meltdown proof they right. they're not big enough to cause a nuclear meltdown so if we put I mean if if we were capable as a country 50 years ago basically to do this you know to to build these one a month we could uh, we could we could do small reactors like that. Uh, uh, all over the country, and uh, and 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 we we could uh, we could uh, you know if if we made it a priority, we could make it happen very quickly. I guess is what I'm trying to say. Well, absolutely. I mean, one of the one of the things that uh, that Brian talks about, and this is something that we have linked to in the past, is this uh, uranium hydride nuclear battery. Right. A company called Hyperion produces these, and uh, this is uh, this is not. I don't think the same. I don't think this is the same thing that you use to power a nuclear sub, but it's uh, it's it's a small. Uh, actually, if you follow the link on uh, Brian's site, you actually see a guy standing next to one in scale. So you get the idea. You know, it's about twice as tall as a person. Mm-hmm. And basically, the thing I don't know. They bring it out to your like, site and they bury it or something like that, and then yeah. just you, you live, you run off of it. You know, for for years. It, well, it provides seventy community. megawatts of thermal energy or twenty-five megawatts of electrical energy for a steam turbine for seven to ten years. Yeah. So that's enough energy to uh, power like 20,000 average American-style homes, um, or the industrial or infrastructure equivalent. It says there. So I mean, you think about 20,000 homes. That's a pretty good chunk of homes for this thing. That is, no kidding. It's probably if you took like, I, I'm sorry, this is the one thing that's coming to mind. I wish I could think of something else, but it looks like it's about four or five porta potties, okay, in size. I mean, if well, it, it certainly could be delivered by train. You, you yeah, put it on. I mean, you put it on. Yeah. Put it on a train and bring it in, and and then they and part of what this company does is they install it on site, and you know, and I think they usually bury it, and then they, when they come to retrieve it, they'll dig it up and take it off and and, and replace it with another one. Apparently, is, right. is it the idea. No waste. It produces yeah. no waste other than itself. I guess there is waste inside of it. Uh, there's no water running through it. Uh, it can't melt down. It's it, it, it's a huge leap forward in. Uh, in nuclear technology, and the fact that it uh, can be so widely distributed means that, um, yeah, you could, you know, plop one down and have it powering 20,000 houses, but there's also this idea that um, you can enable a lot of uh, manufacturing infrastructure, and you can even enable things like, um, one of the ideas they were talking about was uh, digging up shale to make oil out of it, using these to, to power the equipment that, that would be uh, that, that would be used to actually excavate the shale. So you, so you kind of well, get the, the way it would work is, uh, Phil, they they put down electrodes into the shale, and uh, and then you have to obviously have a lot of electricity going down into those electrodes. It then uh, then the oil starts flowing like uh, liquid oil, and then they just pump it out of the ground with oh, a right. uh, by, with by a conventional oil well. Right? Yeah, by warming the shale. It warms the shale, uh, and and then you can pump it out of the ground like conventional oil. With a with a well, and just a regular well, so that's and and you have to obviously have a lot of electricity to do that, and and, and that that could be a solution for that. That's great, yeah. 
and we have enough uh, in the west out there where uh, you and Michael are living. Uh, we have enough uh, oil out there in the form of shale that uh, we, you know, we're up there with Saudi Arabia with our, the level of our reserves. If, if you count that shale oil, absolutely, so, absolutely, so. yeah. I mean, we could uh, just just start tapping a little of that. Uh, it seems to me would would be would be a a nice move forward at this point. Before we get to the point where we've got uh, uh, thirty story. Uh, um, oil producing um, algae farms uh, producing all the, all the oil we need, which will actually be cheaper even than uh, than, than extracting the shale. And uh, at some point, we'll even replace that with with something else. A lot of things on the uh, on the horizon here, where where energy is concerned. And 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 the fact that there are so many potential solutions coming online at the same time, and, and it's kind of an exciting thing. You get to see how it's going to shake out, and uh, you know. Um, with so many potential uh, possibilities, it's hard to be depressed, even with the, with the gas inching up in price. You know, it, it it begins to look like just a process by which to get us to the next thing, uh, rather than uh, than a permanent, you know, crisis, uh, which is what you tend to hear in the mainstream media so much. So, well, you 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 would think you would think that uh, that uh, I, I saw a bumper sticker this morning. I was coming out of the gym. I saw a bumper sticker. It really got my attention. It said, uh, "If you're not outraged, you're not paying attention." And I think uh, I was all the way home composing alternatives to this bumper sticker in my head, and I think the one I came up with, I'm, I'm going to go to Cafe Press or someplace and get this made. If you're not giddy with enthusiasm, you're not paying attention. I think. Yeah, if you're not excited. or Yeah, there's, there's something, yeah, exactly. That's a, You're just not paying attention, or you're listening yeah, you're to the wrong source. you're getting news from the source. wrong source. You need That's to listen right. to fast-forward radio. And yeah. this is fast-forward. Radio on the Blog Talk Radio Network. Our phone lines are open three four seven two one five eight nine seven two. If you want to join our conversation about the mundane future, give us a call and let's talk. So, what else on uh, Brian's list caught your eye? Stephen? Well, um, I, I, I was taken with those uh, vertical farms. Um, the idea, of course, is that you know you have most people live in urban settings nowadays, and. Uh, um, Part of the problem, with, part of the expense factor of food, is that it's got to be trucked in from you know the Midwest or wherever the, our grain belt happens to be. Uh, you're trucking in this food into, say, a place like New York City. That is, you know, that is a lot of energy that's being uh, expended for that. What if um, New York City could produce some of its food right there within within the city, and uh, you just take and, and you would you would take a, a building. A multi-story building and turn it into a giant greenhouse, and it would be climate controlled. It could, it would be completely organic because there would be no need for pesticides because bugs can't get in there to it. And uh, and and you know, it, and and there it is. You you grow it and uh, you feed you feed the city right there. And so there's not a lot of uh, um, you know, not a lot of energy cost to something like that. So. Well, I'll tell you, one of the things that really caught my attention uh, when I was reading on uh, about that one is apparently there are enough abandoned buildings in the New York area that you could feed New York. You know, just turn all the abandoned buildings into these uh, into these food farms, and you could probably produce enough food to feed the whole city of New York. And that that kind of gives you the idea of, you know, not that... Uh, I not hope that it's not something that... Easy to, uh, I'm sorry. Go yeah. ahead, Phil. Yeah, I was going to say, not that it's easy to implement, but that the uh, the world is kind of setting itself up and waiting for this to happen. You would almost right. Somebody is going to take the step. Now, I'm, I'm hopeful that it's not you know a government entity that just mandates it. I I hope that you know we get some entrepreneurs who get in there and decide we're going to we're going to farm right here. Um, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's a store somewhere in New York City that sells overalls. You know, I mean, so <laughs> get, get, get your hoe, get your overalls, and uh, turn a turn an abandoned building into a, a food factory, and see uh, and see how that works. I, I, I'm anxious to see somebody somewhere try that and see how it goes. So, yeah, what what I want to see is uh, I want to see a big land war going on over abandoned buildings when people who are trying to raise parade or start to divide the want to raise algae for energy. Uh, versus the, the people who want to put a bunch of these uh, uh, hydride uh, battery uh, nuclear power plants in and provide power. Now, when, when, when we see uh, when we see open uh, when we see abandoned office space being fought over for those three things, I think we know that uh, the mundane singularity is near, if not the if not, not the, the real one, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, uh, one of the one of the things that. Uh, that got my attention was, uh, of course, Brian uh, talks a lot about improvements to the uh, to the overall human condition, to 
to our you know to our health, to our to our bodies, to our brains. Um, and in fact, he had uh, written some really interesting comments on last week's program uh, after our after our conversation uh, about myostatin inhibitors and and other things. And he talks about, uh, for example, uh, drugs that will uh, mimic the effects of calorie restriction uh, that should be available within five years. And of course, we know calorie restriction uh, in mice and uh, some other animals uh, has a life lengthening, lifespan lengthening effect on them. Uh, it's it's a hard practice to maintain for human beings, so it, it hasn't caught on widely as a uh, as, as a means of extending life. But but drugs that will mimic that effect, and he says that uh, those should provide uh, three to 13 years of increased lifespan. So that's not huge. That's not actuarial escape velocity, but it's a it's a big step forward, and it's one that uh, uh, one that we expect to see within within five years. Then then he talks about um, treatment. And and I got I got to mention this that that would be within the time frame of my prediction of first-generation life extension when it arrives, and so I'm, I'm, I'm happy about that. Well, there you go. All right. So <laughs> once again, you know, you're just, you're, you're kind of the poor man's Kurzweil. <laughs> That's right. Very poor. <laughs> Very poor man. You know, you're, you're putting them out there, and they're coming true, and by golly, it's... Uh, I, I, hey, i got to toot my horn every now and then. But anyway, yeah, go ahead. Well, make- uh, but that's beautiful. Make some more predictions like that because I love to see him. Uh, I love to see him coming into play. Now, now he talks about the uh, um, uh, treatments to boost the human immune system against cancer and uh, effective and cheap early detection of cancer cells. We uh, obviously he's talking about Doctor Doctor Shui there. Uh, well, doc, yeah, Doctor Doctor Kui is one of them. But you'd also put a story up about a guy who was cured of uh, effectively cured of cancer using his own immune system. Uh, that's right. That's right. They they what they did was they um, they took immune cells out of his own body. Uh, he brought them, put them in a petri dish, uh, cultured them, and put them back into him. And I suppose if you have a healthy immune system, that would be a possibility for somebody who's fighting cancer. Uh, if if you don't, then you're going to need to go with uh, uh, with is it Doctor Shui or Doctor Kui? Kui, Doctor Jing Kui. Uh, Doctor Kui, you'd have to go with his. Uh, with his treatment, which is called GIFT, which is granule site infusion therapy, is what that stands for, and, and what that is is you get donor uh, uh, cells from someone uh, some, from a healthy person's immune system and and uh, and transfuse it into your body and, and for the same effect to kill uh, to kill cancer. And the cool thing about this is it's not going to have to go through a huge long FDA approval process. You know, right. um, there's no drug that's going to have to go through. You know, trials and things. If it works and they find it to work, uh, this could be something we'll see in the next year or so. Absolutely. And if, it, if it has the same effect in humans as it has in mice, we're talking about, you know, saving most of the people who come down with cancer. Uh, it's yeah. that it's that big it's of a deal. Big. Yeah, it's absolutely that big. If if it if it's as effective, I mean, that's a big if. But if yeah. it's as effective for humans as it is for mice, then that's exactly what we're talking about. And his trial has started. I should have put something up on the speculist about that. Yeah. I actually saw that over on, either on Randall's site or on Brian's site uh, within the past couple of weeks. That Do- uh, Dr. Quee had said that he was have to, he would have to wait until this summer, and uh, that's what he did. He, he waited until this summer and then started the human trial. So yeah, because interestingly, uh, I guess immune system uh, limp, uh, granulocyte uh, harvesting is much more effective in the summer than. In the uh, in the cold months, so it's a sunshine thing. Uh, I don't understand, but it's that's the that's exactly right. So. Yeah. So something uh, something to look forward to. We can't wait to uh, to, to get results from that one, and uh, hopefully we'll have him back on the program to talk about uh, to, to talk about those results. That that is going to be that is going to be huge. But I want to go back to the other one because I, I think that's so interesting. The um, uh, taking someone's own immune system, building right. it up in a petri dish, injecting that back into them, and it and uh, it effectively eliminates cancer. Doesn't that almost make you think, hey, what if you just started doing that to a healthy person? Would that yeah. be a bad idea? Wouldn't that be a good idea? You know, I mean, yeah, uh, exactly. And you know, uh, Doctor Dr. Kui had said this back when you were visiting with him about uh, six months ago. There is a reason we have a, a a flu season in the wintertime, and it's not it's you know it's not because there's not fl- you know these viruses floating around in the middle of the summer. They are, but we're able to fight them off during the summer better, um, precisely because our immune systems are working better in the summertime. What if uh, you know, in the in in throughout the year, we were boosting our immune systems so that we had basically summertime immune systems all year long? Maybe we wouldn't have a flu season. Well, yeah. What, what if what if the flu shot was replaced by an annual shot of your own immune system? 
Sounds, sounds pretty great to me. I, I'll, I'll get in line for that. Because not only would it prevent that particular flu, it would predict it would prevent any other flu coming along, or at least you know help to protect you against that. Plus any cold stomach virus, you name it. You know, you know just yeah. anything. So, yeah, that's that's a great it would be a great thing. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to see uh, I'd like to see that coming down the pipe here pretty soon. And then finally, he talks about cognitive enhancement, and that kind of takes us full circle back to what what do we mean about a uh, uh, a singularity? Um, even if we don't get AGI, even if we don't get artificial general intelligence, even if we don't get molecular nanotechnology, the fact that uh, we have substantially improved our, if, if not our intelligence, then at least our ability to manipulate the world around us through technology uh, up to this point, and, and now uh, create treatments that will enhance our cognitive abilities, that we can actually go in and start tweaking the way our brains work and, and make them smarter. And I'll say it again, I think at that point, you've just hit the true singularity once again. Because right. because once once people get smarter, they, they can figure out other ways to get smarter. And and it builds on itself. Well, and and may, maybe, you know, maybe the critics are right. Maybe we aren't smart enough to, uh, to invent AGI as we are now. But what about after we've uh, tweaked ourselves a little bit? How about then? You know, so exactly. It, it would be, you know, and and uh, hey, don't bet against something uh, just because we've never done it before. If you go far enough into the past, you could say that about anything. Um, you know, it's it's just because it hasn't been done doesn't mean it can't be done. Well, and in fact, there are so many balls in play now, so many more than there ever have been before. It seems to me there are so many paths, uh, if not to the singularity, then to this kind of radical transformation of the world that that. Um, that, that I'm going to allow as a second definition of the singularity, um, that the, the chances that one of those is going to pan out is increased just by the fact that, you know, there are so many of them. That's right. Uh, if, if, if we only had one possible path to the singularity, then it would all depend on how likely that one thing is to happen. But when you start looking at all these different technologies um, and, and all these different possible ways we can improve uh, our access to material goods or improve... Uh, our health, uh, to extend our lives, to produce energy. You know, you're, you're looking at a world that almost can't help but um, be fundamentally different over the next few decades. I mean, what, whatever, whatever wins, whatever comes out on top, with or without molecular nanotechnology, with or without AGI, we're going to be looking at a very different world, I would say, even, uh, even 15, 20 years from now than the world we're living in now. I, I think absolutely. I think that's absolutely uh, right. Yeah. Well, I, I guess that's a good place to close it. Yeah, this is a, I'm not going to improve on that, Phil. <laughs> Unless, uh, Michael, we got any uh, questions or comments from the chat room that uh, you'd want to share with us? <clears throat> I'm not smart enough to keep up with the chat room tonight, but let me just say that uh, two things came up that I, I find an interesting, if not oblique, connection to tonight's show. Uh, definitely the interesting tangent. One is um, Terrence McKenna and Time Wave Zero. And uh, the other is the fact that on 12-21-2012, the world's going to end anyway. Oh, uh, <laughs> according, uh, according the, to who? Uh, the Aztec calendar, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Aztec yeah, calendar, was, guys with black helicopters, who knows? Well, that's why I was kind of surprised that the X-Files movie came out this year. I was expecting, or maybe they were going to have one this year and then have one in, uh, in uh, 2012, because that was always the predicted end of the world on the X-Files was actually that uh, but it, it it does definitely give some uh, clarity to when to post date your fantasy checks for. You know, if you're well, Homer Simpson and you're writing somebody a million dollar check to buy the nuclear power plant, date it for twelve twenty two, two thousand twelve. Well, I, I'll tell you what, we will. Uh, I guess that's Slorge Gridlock bringing this up uh, there in the chat room. Slorge, I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly. We we will try to do a tales of the. Uh, Paranormal on Terrence McKenna and Time Zero uh, one of these days because that is fun stuff and uh, I think we could uh, uh, we, we would enjoy talking about that a little bit further. But uh, with that in mind, Stephen, I'm going to ask you what we got going on music-wise this evening. Well, I want before we get into that, if you don't mind going just a couple minutes longer, I wanted to uh, bring up your declaration of singularity uh, that uh, that that you wrote about uh, or just brought back in because of uh, the Fourth of July. Um, oh, sure. I, I've noticed that. You've had a couple of commenters, if not this year, um, like you know, maybe when you first uh, published it, that thought that you were kind of playing fast and loose with a sacred document, you know. Um, well, yeah. And I, 
Uh, go ahead. Yeah, a, a couple of uh, a couple of comments that I that I mentioned in there that that have come up in the past. One is that uh, that I'm disre- that I'm like disrespecting the the Declaration of Independence by doing this Declaration of Singularity, and the other one is that. Uh, uh, that clearly I'm down on democracy since this was uh, the creation of our democratic government, and since I'm trying to improve on that or replace that with other language, I must think that the American Revolution was bad, and I want to create this like uh, machine dictatorship or something like that. And of course, um, the, uh, to, to the first argument, I would say um, uh, no offense intended. I think uh, uh, with, with all humility, the Thomas Jefferson and, and company would not object to uh, somebody in this day and age using their document as, as a means of looking forward into uh, other changes that might be coming. So I, I plead not guilty on that one. And the second one, that's just crazy. Um, I'm, I'm all for the American Revolution. That's why I use the Declaration of Independence as the model, yeah. for heaven's sake. Uh, yeah, you didn't go with uh, Karl Marx's you know, manifesto or anything. You went with... Well, exactly, uh, yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, it's not like I took Mein Kampf and, uh, you know, added a bunch of... Uh, uh, singularity language to that. I, I, I felt like, you know, this is, and this goes to our, you know, what do we mean by a singularity? In a sense, the Declaration of Independence talks about a singularity. It talks about a, a world transformed where people have said, hey, going to declare, um, we, we've got this notion of our own rights, and we're going to declare our own government based on the fact that we have the right to do that. And we're going to become a nation ourselves without anyone else saying that we're a nation, without any king on top or any of that other kind of stuff, because our right to do that is self-evident. Um, it's, a, it's a major step forward, uh, not only in the history of this country, but in the history of this planet and in the history of this species. The, uh, the, the, the Declaration of Independence reflects a, a major shift in how human beings looked at what government means and what their relationship to the state is and what their uh, what their right what their rights are their basic fundamental rights are so uh, well, I'm, gonna say, is, I'm sorry I, I would just say that you know the, the, th- the thought that you're disrespecting this document by you know adding different language you know adding different language to you know freedom by its very nature means that no one can ever have the last word. You know it, exactly. It, you, That's where the, our constitution these, can be amended. You know exactly. It's, it, you have you know, there's always the opportunity to uh, adjust to the times, and that's what that's precisely what you were you know kind of doing. And but but at the same time, you're also uh, it's a tribute to the document as well. Um, I saw this great uh, show. Uh, have you seen the uh, the special on John Adams? Um, oh, on the, HBO. I've seen a couple of uh, a few minutes of that. I haven't seen the whole show. It is a great show, and I, I and what made me think about what you had done with the with the document was there there's this great scene where um, Thomas Jefferson comes in with what he had written, and uh, and he shows it to John Adams. John Adams like is is moved to tears practically. Okay, John Adams is was a man who was a very prideful kind of man, and and you know, uh, but he he humbled himself and said, I can't do it. I, I don't have the uh, I'm not as eloquent with my words as you are. You need to do it. And so Thomas Jefferson did it and brought us John Adams. John Adams would not have changed a word a word uh, of it. They handed it to Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin pulls out his red pen, you know. <laughs> he, says, <Yeah. laughs> he says, okay, this first thing here, we hold these truths to be self-evident. Uh, actually, not self-evident. What he had said originally was we hold these truths to be sacred and undeniable. He says that smacks, it smacks of the pulpit. We we're, we want a secular government. We how about we go uh, with something a little more rationalist? Why don't we say these truths are self-evident? And um, and I, I you know so I mean not that we're comparing ourselves to Benjamin Franklin by any means, but it, it's just that uh, you, again you know you don't have the last word with these things. That uh, and, and another thing Benjamin Franklin said in that scene, at least I don't know if this reflected reality or not. He, sa- he says this cannot be the work of one man. You know, right. it, it, it's got to be. Uh, there, there are going to be other people that weigh in on this before it yeah. becomes. It, it, took, it took it took a bunch of them. Uh, it took a bunch of them working together. Although I had always heard this could be apocryphal that uh, that uh, John Adams uh, objected to uh, Jefferson's use of the word inalienable. 
He said the real word is unalienable, and I followed Adam's usage in my uh, declaration of singularity with unalienable. But that's the kind of thing, you know, Adams would, you know, he's not he's not going to go in and change the big stuff. He's going to go, you know, hey, you missed the spot there. Oh, yeah, he just remember it's a grammatical thing, but yeah, he did yeah, know. a little bit of a grammatical thing. But but I think the other thing I would clarify is I don't really predict that this will happen. I don't think there will be a Congress of uh, the new post-human civilization. It's kind of cool if there was. We're all going to get together and declare our independence from the previous civilization. It's just, you know... That's not likely to happen. Uh, Yeah, what happened in in, in Philadelphia during those years? Yeah, it's a once-in-history kind of thing. It's not likely to happen. Yeah, I I don't see this actually happening, but I think that the the declaration makes a nice springboard for talking about those kinds of issues. And to me, the real fun part is not so much the part where I'm marking out government and writing in civilization or marking out mankind and putting in intelligent beings. But what's fun is uh, to put together that list of grievances, which is the completely swapped out section. I mean, uh, the the Continental Congress and, and, and Jefferson had put in this list of grievances against King George. Well, I don't care about that, so I put in a list of grievances against the post-industrial world about all the, you know, crap that it has uh, laid on us all these years in, in terms of uh, artificial and arbitrary limits uh, as to the duration of our lifespan and um, enforcing meaningless distinctions between labor and leisure, and you know, just a lot of the kinds of things that we we look to see overcome from a from a speculative standpoint, and that's what we're, we're declaring our independence from when the singularity occurs. It's we're declaring our independence from a world that has limited us in ways that we essentially will not allow ourselves to be limited in those ways any longer, and that's why I think the Declaration of Independence makes a great well, it's great reading anyway. It's very seasonally appropriate. I, I, I did link to the real thing, and I, and I recommend it to everyone. But, but it's, a, it's a great model for uh, anyone who wants to imagine the world transformed, and that's, that's what we're all about here. That's right. That's right. Okay, now let's get to the closing music, I guess. Okay, um, what do you got? Uh, Brother Love, uh, the band Brother Love, comes back to Fast Forward Radio tonight. The song is Push. Push. Now, what was the previous song we had by Brother Love? Um, oh, you would quiz me on that. Um, yeah, a little uh, fast-forward music trivia for you there. Ooh, it was, was it Turn It Up? I think it might have been, yeah. Uh, you know what, you could have said anything right then, and I would have gone, I think it might have been, Steve. Any rate, well, uh, it's, they're a great band, and uh, I'll I tell you what, in the show notes, I'll link to the last thing uh, I played from Brother Love as well. Um, okay, because, yeah, they're, 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 they're getting a call back here, so, you know. I mean, the, the, exactly, you, you want to hear it all. They're regulars here on, here on Fast Forward Radio. No doubt. All right, well, we'll look forward to reading those uh, show notes. We'll look for those uh, sometime tomorrow or the, or the following day. Stephen, thank you very much. And thank you, Michael, and to all of our friends. Forward to being with you all again on the next Fast Forward Radio. Good night. Oh.